So we are 11 or 12 talks by now through this Claim Your Freedom series. And I think you know my bias. I prop on scripture and I do my best to lean into the spirit. Now, there's no problem if you don't. We can disagree, we can still interact, and we can learn a lot together. But since this is my uh, platform and I have the microphone, and we've already gone there, I wanna show you something else from the Bible in this talk. And I promise you, this one's gonna to apply to you too, even if that's not your chosen belief system. And so since you've been with me for all these talks, here, here's what I'm hoping for. I'm asking you, those of you who don't necessarily subscribe to Christianity, to follow along with me, to just give me a bit of grace as we work through the next few minutes. And I promise you this one, and as it relates to emotional health, is going to be completely worth it. All right, I promise. Now, that said, there are multiple words we find in the New Testament for healing. What I wanna do here in this talk is I wanna outline two of them to you, and then I wanna to talk to you about how they not only just affect physical health and healing, but how they also affect emotional health and emotional healing. Understand why there are different words in the Bible. That's really important because once we get into the text, we see that it's really showing us a few different things that have everything to do with how we move forward. Let me explain. One word for healing. Iomai. It means miraculous or instant change. Now, the Greek speakers had a completely different alphabet than we have, but that's the best way we can kind of transliterate it into just I-A-M-A-I. I'm going to put a graphic where you can see this in the show notes. Iomai. It's abrupt. It's cataclysmic. It changes things immediately. Now, we see Iomai all throughout the New Testament. For instance, uh, Jesus Iomai, instant miraculous uh, abrupt change, the blind man who had never ever seen anything from the moment that he had been born. That was in John 9, 1 and following. Uh, another example, Jesus Iomai, the paralytic man who was lowered through the roof by the four friends in Mark 2, 1 and following. Um, Jesus Iomai, the lame man uh, at the pool of Bethesda in John 5, 1. Um, Jesus Iomai, the leper who approached him in Mark 1, 4. No one debates the fact that Jesus healed with miracles, not even people from other faith traditions. In fact, when we think of how Jesus healed people, we all most often exclusively envision him performing a miracle. Well, it turns out he still does miracles today. I've seen Iomai firsthand in different books that I have and the healing workshop that's available on my website. Uh, I describe how my sister's heart murmur, it was completely healed. Uh, my brother's gouged eye, he now has perfect vision. My uncle died twice at UAB, he's alive 20 years later. Those are all examples of Iomai. Clearly, I believe that Jesus healed in the past and I believe he still heals in the present. And I tell you that because I want you to understand that I emphatically uh, don't have an anti-miracle bias when I relay this next concept to you. I say that because I've taught this at churches, in a few charismatic churches, who clearly think that I do have an anti-miracle bias, and, and I don't. Now, here it is. Whereas he performed miracles for some, Jesus also taught others to be well, to live a lifestyle of health and wholeness. That is, Jesus instructed people how to choose health. Okay, so the second word that we see in the New Testament, it's this word therapeuo. You probably recognize that. It means teach people how to be well, to wait on, or to heal over time. You recognize the similarity between therapeuo and therapy. Um, 
I've got a description or a graphic in the show notes I want to put to you uh, there because the word Iomei, instant healing, it's used 30 times in the New Testament, but that word therapuo, healing over time, it's used 40 times. In, in other words, there may actually be a slight emphasis on the walk it out over time, choose health type of healing. Now, what we see is that both of these work together. In Matthew 8, a passage uh, in which the former tax collector Matthew, he strings together a series of healing events as really a commentary on Isaiah 53. That's a passage in the Old Testament that prophesied the, that the Messiah would be a healer. Uh, Matthew tells us that Jesus healed several people instantly. He says that a leper approached him and was instantly made whole. That's Matthew 8.3. And then a centurion servant who had contracted a disease that inflicted immediate paralysis on his whole body, that he was healed instantly in Matthew 8.13. Uh, and then Peter's mother-in-law, she had been on her deathbed with an extreme fever. She rose up. She began serving them as soon as Jesus touched her. That's in Matthew 8.15. Clearly, Jesus Iomai, he instantaneously miracled people. But Matthew tells us this series of three miracles that they created such a pleasant commotion that the entire village then gathered together at Peter's mother-in-law's house uh, after learning she was well. Anyone who was sick or demon-possessed was immediately brought to him for attention. And Matthew then tells us this. In Matthew 8:16, he healed them with the word. Now, I used to read that passage and emphasize the with a word part as if Jesus simply spoke and then something supernaturally magical happened. Here, you be healed. Then you too, go your way and be merry. Also, oh, you, yeah, right there in the back. Yeah, you as well. Now, obviously, Jesus did that kind of thing. Matthew just showed us a series of three encounters where that type of occurrence happened. Yet here, in Matthew 8, 16, in the very next verse, he reports that something else occurred altogether. Yes, Jesus healed them, but the word Matthew uses to denote that he healed, it's not the word iomei, rather it's the word therapuo. Matthew literally tells this, that when the crowds all rallied together at Peter's mother-in-law's house, that Jesus healed them by teaching them how to live well. Furthermore, Matthew includes this passage, this verse about teaching people how to be well in his entire treatise on the Isaiah 53 passage. He concludes the whole series of healing events by pinning this in Matthew 8, 17. Um, this is what was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53. He took up our infirmities and he bore our diseases. In other words, healing people instantly and healing people over time by teaching them to live well are both aspects of what Jesus came to do. Sometimes Jesus heals instantly in a moment. Other times he teaches people how to be well. Sometimes Jesus touches us and we are dramatically changed in that second. Other times he imparts wisdom to us so that we can walk out the freedom. Now, think about what this really means practically. Let's move it from theory to real life. Jesus can heal lung cancer, but he can also teach us about the ills of smoking. Jesus can cure diabetes. He can also show us how to eat better. He can heal sexually transmitted diseases, but he also provides us with wisdom and directions on how to live whole and healthy lives as well as experience the true joy of intimacy with one person. He can heal us of the dozens of physical nuisances that we've grown to tolerate, or we can take his directions and experience 
what it really means to be alive. Now, let me show you another example, and then we'll apply it to emotional and mental health, I, I promise. Now, this story begins in Acts 27. Paul, Luke, and 274 other travelers gather together, get on a boat, go on a trip, and then they find themselves shipwrecked on the island of Malta. Now, Luke, he's the traveler that's reporting the story. He was a well-known physician. Furthermore, he's the New Testament author that communicates the most thoroughly about the Holy Spirit and God's supernatural power to perform miracles. He does this in the Gospel of Luke, and he's the one that wrote the book of Acts. Now, this is an important detail because it shows us that he's going to be balanced and honest with the data. Okay, On one hand, as a physician, he'll tell us if healthy lifestyle choices were involved. On the other hand, as a miracle worker, he'll tell us if God intervened and did something that we can't humanly explain. Both sides are important. Remember, Matthew just showed us Jesus did both. Now, the shipwreck crew made their way to the shore and they built a fire to warm themselves. In the hustle, they stirred a snake pit of making their fire and after surviving a viper bite that should have killed him instantly, the islanders concluded that Paul had a supernatural reason for being there. In fact, they perceived him to be a god. That's in Acts 28.6 and I just kind of want to refer back to that perception reality type thing that we talked about uh, weeks ago. Okay, Luke writes that because of this, Paul was taken to the local chief who was confined to his deathbed. Most likely, that deathbed was because he had a dreaded illness like dysentery. That's Acts 28, 7, and 9. Luke details that Paul then iomai him. Okay, to use language that we're familiar with, that was a miracle. Now, the remainder of the islanders, they all gather together to the hut after this encounter, much in the same way that those crowds flocked to Jesus after he healed Peter's mother-in-law. Luke, who would have known exactly what happened from the vantage point of being both an eyewitness and a skilled medical professional, as well as the man who understood the powerful potential of the Holy Spirit, he explains that Paul then healed every diseased person on the island. That's Acts 28.9. Now, to be clear, here's what Luke writes. Paul therapeuo the entire island. That is, he miracled the chief, and then he taught everyone else how to live well. Or let's just say it another way. Those were not miracles. Now, when I teach those concepts, I most often define my terms at the beginning of the class that I'm about to teach, okay? So it keeps everyone on the same page, it eliminates the guesswork, and I usually say something like this. When I say the word healing, I'm referring to miracles. I'm referring to Iomei, to something God does. We might pray and ask him to do it, but it's something that unless he does it, it doesn't happen. I often add this. In fact, he has to do it. I can't, so I'm not going to take the credit if he does it, and so I won't take the blame if he doesn't. I'll ask him, but that's where it sits. It rests in his hands. Now, most people instantly understand that definition, and they realize that, yeah, this is something that God does. So I move to the next concept. I say this, when I say the word health, I'm referring to choices that you make to support wholeness and well-being. This is therapeutic. This is something that you do. It's a deliberate choice. Okay, so most people, when they're there, they understand that too. What many people have not understood before is that they do not have to choose between one or the other. Okay, you don't have to choose between one or the other. In fact, both are important. Each one enhances the other. Jesus did both, Paul did both, we can do both and celebrate both as well. 
Let me explain that. A few years ago, I read that cancer is 90 to 95% connected to environmental factors and only 5 to 10% connected related to genetics. I read it on a government website, not an obscure all things natural health only site. Uh, in fact, um, just I'll, I'll put it in the show notes, just the quote that I got from um, one of these national institutes, government site, only 5 to 10% of all cancers cases can be attributed to genetic defects whereas the remaining 90 to 95% have their roots in the environment and lifestyle. In other words, here's what that quote is saying. We may have far more control over that dreaded disease than we once thought. We're not victims of genetics, helpless and hopeless apart from a miracle. Turns out we have way more control over most health issues than we previously thought. Now, when I teach these concepts, I usually tell people, yes, let's pray for a miracle. Let's hope that happens. I have faith that it can. We pray, and often miracles come. I always tell them too though, even if a miracle doesn't happen, we're going to start walking in health right now. That is, we're going to immediately make lifestyle adjustments that stand in line with overall health and wellness. Miracles, it seems, are needed for 5% of the things we cannot control. Got it? Our choices can radically influence the other 95%. So if you begin making wise decisions now, the odds are radically in your favor. I conclude. I just tell them. This is kind of a phrase I use in the healing workshop. Miracle or no miracle, healing starts now. Now by that I mean this. If God does the thing that only he can do and we see a supernatural breakthrough, we receive it and we celebrate. If on the other hand he doesn't, we still make healthy choices in alignment with what we want our bodies to do and we move forward. In fact, I encourage people to make those choices anyway. I tell them that we want our lifestyle to always reflect our goals. So if, for instance, cancer is 95% environmental and 5% genetic, we don't want to receive a miracle that takes care of that 5% and then not adjust the 95% afterwards of the factors we can control. We want all of our decisions to support what we receive. So then I think that makes complete sense. Now, when Jesus commanded his disciples and empowered them to preach the gospel of the kingdom, and then when he sent them out, here's what's interesting. He told them the exact same thing. He told them to heal people as they went. Uh, Luke 9, 2 is a good example of that. Healing was part of their message. It was part of that total package that they carried wherever they traveled. And when Jesus sent out the 70, he said the same thing. So he sent out the 12 in one instance, he sent out the 70 in another, and he said, heal the sick. And then say to them, when you heal them, the kingdom of God has come near. That's in Luke 10, 9. Now, I want you to notice the kind of healing that he sent them to demonstrate and teach. This is, it's completely revelatory. The word he used, the word we translate as heal, is therapeuo, not iomei. They weren't sent only to instantly heal people with miracles, which we know that many of them did from New Testament stories and other passages that we read. They were also told to teach a kingdom way of life. That is, they were sent to show people how to live well, how to be whole. Now, here's what, that, that's a really long intro, and here's what all of that has to do with this whole concept of emotional health in this entire Claim Your Freedom series um, that I've been doing. First, number one, I want to empower you uh, as much as I possibly can to live emotionally whole, to be well from the inside out. Uh, earlier in this whole series, uh, we discussed how sometimes getting the stuff right on the inside 
it leaks to the outside, or better way to say it would be, it overflows and it transforms the outside. So it's highly likely that any issues that you may have in your body, uh, according to 3 John 2, will follow the condition of your soul. Uh, second, emotional healing isn't just, so it's not only, is what I'm saying, it, it can happen this way, but it's not only an instant Iomei miracle proposition. Emotional health is a lifestyle. Now, yes, I believe the Father often heals people in a moment, even of emotional wounds. But it's possible, and it's highly probable, you'll find healing through the process of walking it out. And too many people wait to get struck by lightning is maybe the good analogy. Um, that is, they wait for a supernatural event to occur that suddenly becomes their breakthrough. My question is this, what if that doesn't happen? What if there is no breakthrough? Is all hope vanquished? Of course not. We can still therapeuo our way there. We can claim our freedom, and then we can begin the process of sorting life and fighting for wholeness. Let me give you an analogy of maybe what that might look like for you. Um, the Declaration of Independence, it was signed on July 4th, 1776. I mean, we know that. We celebrate that with fireworks and barbecue, swimming, long days at the beach, and more every single year. That is the day that our founding fathers claimed our freedom. But... The United States wasn't yet free. They claimed freedom before anyone saw the finality of it. You see, the military campaigns of the Revolutionary War, they lasted from 1775 all the way until 1783. It took seven years of walking in a freedom that didn't yet exist in order to truly be free. Now, don't miss the parallel. You might have to stake a claim and begin your freedom march before there's evidence as well. You might have to therapeuo it even when the evidence suggests otherwise. And even if a miracle does happen, okay, you're going to want to walk that lifestyle of emotional health and wholeness anyway, right? So for the next few minutes, the final minutes of this, I want to outline four things you can do right now. They're totally free that are going to empower you to walk out what I've just described to you from the pages of the New Testament. Okay, four tools. Um, actually, three are free to walk in emotional health. Number one, eat better. Number two, move more. Number three, write it out. Number four, seek professional help. Now, I've got this website, and I placed a video on it, and I discussed these in more detail there. So I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes where you can actually log on, and you can just watch the video where this goes um, in way better detail. Again, link in the show notes. Okay, number one, eat better. Scientists regularly refer to the gut, your stomach, as your second brain. Now, if you had a graphic, you could look at it. It's shaped a lot like your brain, um, your stomach. It features millions of neurons. It possesses its own nervous system. That nervous system mirrors the nervous system in your brain. Anything that happens down there, it actually affects everywhere else in your body. Um, let's say this, if you have kids, you've known this for years. If you toss the little ones some broccoli, they remain calm. They might complain, but it is a docile whine at worst. If you throw them a bag of Sour Patch Kids and a Capri Sun juice bag, you're going to see a different level of fury unleashed altogether. It's, it's akin to unleashing the Kraken, you know, that mythological creature on Clash of the Titans. Why? Because anything that goes in the stomach, it radically affects the brain. 
Now, let, let me give you a tidbit about the gut. Your stomach actually thinks on some level. I know that sounds weird, but so hear me out. Let me give you a couple of just maybe concepts that'll help flesh that. Uh, you've probably had insight or intuition before and just known that something was really, really right or that something was a bit off. If I ask you, how'd you know that? You might just reply, I just knew in my gut. In fact, you might not even be able to put it in words, but you would know because you felt it like in the center of your being. Um, maybe another example. You might have stepped into the unknown before, uh, into a hard situation in which you had to be brave. You knew it was a stretch. Uh, you marched through uncharted territory where you didn't really know the outcome or it was your first time trying something, but you pressed on. You may have even felt butterflies in your stomach as you did, alerting you that something, again, um, was happening that you couldn't quite explain with words. Your gut is the second brain. In fact, I'm going to put a picture in the show notes where you can see just an outline of what your stomach looks like. It just kind of looks like a sideways right there brain. Now, when dealing with hard things, it makes sense to give your body the best fuel you can. In fact, I would say it makes sense to do that all the time because when you get your gut health right, many of the health issues that we regularly tend to juggle, they actually sort themselves out and resolve. That was my experience a couple years ago when I was 50 pounds overweight and had all kinds of health issues. So what I'm saying is a tool for therapeuing your emotional health is eat more live food, food that's grown in a garden or on a tree, not something that's bought out of a can or magically created in a factory. Uh, eat more protein, okay? And a lot of vegetables actually have protein, so if you're a vegetarian, uh, some of you are, you can actually achieve that. I would say can the processed foods, like stop eating processed foods, as well as anything that has any ingredient on the label that you cannot pronounce. So many foods have calories, but there's no nutrition in them, meaning they'll help you gain weight, but they give you no fuel, meaning they're not going to help your body physically or emotionally. Got it? That's step number one is eat better. Step number two is move more. Uh, the next step you can take in walking in emotional therapeuo is actually to exercise. This sounds obvious, but many people, when they're feeling down, they tend to slow way down physically and occupy themselves with other things like scrolling social media, binging Netflix. So I'm saying, yeah, enjoy a movie, sure, but don't stop moving. Here are three reasons why you need to move more. Okay, reason number one. Tiredness, remember this, I talked about this a couple talks ago, tiredness mimics depression and depression mimics tiredness. Exercise, on the other hand, it actually generates its own energy. So when you move, even if it's just a 20 to 30 minute walk, you send your body sparking in the opposite direction of feeling energized and your endorphins kick up. So you're less tired, you're less depressed. That's a good reason. Reason number two is this. Exercise is a neurological process. That means it's a brain function. It's a neurological process that fires the left side of the brain. Okay, so whereas the right side of your brain is emotive and is creative, it's artistic, the left side of your brain is logical, it's rational, exercise awakens that left side, the part of the brain that by default deals more with logic and reason than emotion. So it helps you sort. That's why I told you a couple talks ago that when I'm out exercising and running, that's when most of my creative ideas and problem solving 
tend to just kind of come to me. Things that I've been struggling with to figure out on paper, they just, boom, they're there, I see it, and then I get back and I just kind of jot it down and then figure out the details. Now, for sure, both sides of your brain are important, but when you're dealing with hard things, it's important not only to feel them, which you need to do. You don't need to run from them, but you also need to work through life and work through those hard things in an ordered way. Waking the left side of the brain helps you sort, helps you file, and helps you review as you move forward. That's reason number two. Reason number three is this. Exercise awakens your parasympathetic nervous system. Okay, Long word, parasympathetic nervous system. That's as opposed to the sympathetic nervous system. Here's the difference. The sympathetic is responsible for the response commonly referred to as fight or flight, while the parasympathetic is referred to as rest and digest. Okay, do you get that? Sympathetic, fight or flight, parasympathetic, rest and digest. The sympathetic nervous system is the part of the um, nervous system that prepares the body to react to stresses such as threat or injury. Uh, in other words, the sympathetic nervous system, by default, it generates survival instincts commonly exhibited in cases of PTSD or trauma. The sympathetic nervous system, it can make you feel like you're dealing with stress even when you're not. You can get caught in that perception reality tango. The parasympathetic nervous system, on the other hand, it's the opposite of stress. It puts your body at rest, which, as you might remember, uh, rest is what puts you back in rhythm, back in that balance that we talked about uh, several weeks ago. So again, most of my best ideas, they emerge while I'm exercising, when my mind and my body are free to just be, my thoughts organize, the chaos evaporates, at least till I walk back in the door of my house, right? Things begin making sense. And let's be honest, exercise, it makes you look better and often just looking better automatically makes you feel better, okay? Um, that said, let me give you tool number three for walking in emotional wholeness, uh, emotional therapeuto. Three, write it out. Write it down. Now, this third one, it always trips people up. Uh, I'm not a writer, they say. No, no worries. You don't have to be. You're not writing to publish and you're not writing to leave a legacy journal behind for your kids. With this kind of writing, you're writing for you. And, and by writing, I mean actually writing with a pen or pencil and paper, not typing. Here's why. Writing by hand is a neurological process. Okay, so that means it's in your brain. Uh, it's a process that helps your mind do more of that sorting. Now think about it for a minute. When I write down the notes for this sentence that I'm speaking to you right now, I'm mentally required to connect it to the previous sentence as well as to the next sentence. My brain, it makes connections, it builds relationships among various strands of thought, almost on autopilot as I start making those connections. Okay, You can type many times without even thinking. And it sounds like it should work when you type, but it doesn't. It's completely different. And, it, and it, uh, trust me, like I'm an actual writer this is how it works. This is why so many times I, I will skip pen and paper and just go to the computer and just pound something out if it's got to be done because I can almost generate some stuff without thinking. And it's why many of my social posts where I'm really processing something and trying to deliver something that says a lot in a few words, I write it pen and paper in a little journal book first. Now, sorting some of the sentences like what I'm writing and saying here 
it's not important in the grand scheme. But sorting past hurt, sorting current problems, sorting future potential as you move from the past into where you're designed to be, that stuff is incredibly important. And I would say this, there, there are different kinds of writing. Um, you can simply mind dump, you can bullet point things onto paper and just offload them from your brain. Uh, you can journal your story. That's one thing I did uh, over uh, about a year season when I was I was healing and it took different forms. It started off as bullet points and then I went back and I fleshed it out in paragraph and in sentence form and went back and actually worked through some of the dialogue and then went back another time and kind of made some assessments and some judgments on what what happened and what didn't happen and what should have happened and it helped me understand the patterns and gain perspective on the bigger picture. Um, you can make a list of things you feel and then with some time and space you can look at those things objectively uh, you can circle the ideas that are truths that are things you need to cling to you can scratch through the ideas where you look at it and go oh that's a false belief that's something where I had the wrong perspective where my perception wasn't reality and you can let go of things uh, that third one is something I learned from Dr. Jim Bob he does the third and then that dude he tosses the paper in the trash and, and gets rid of it because it's his way of letting it go. Now, in her book, Switch on Your Brain, Dr. Caroline Leaf, uh, I'll put that book in the show notes where you got a link to it. She actually coaches her readers through a 21-day detox in which they learn to recognize harmful thinking patterns from helpful thinking patterns, all while dealing with past hurts so that they can move forward full of hope. She says this, it takes 60 days to create a new habit, even a mental habit, okay? Even a mental habit, such as constructing a new thinking pattern. So her suggestion is that you complete a 21-day detox three times and then evaluate really where you are after that 63rd day. Her goal is this, it's to automate right thinking so that you can walk forward in emotional and mental health. And what she's getting at is in the same way that we can find ourselves triggered in destructive ways. We've talked about that before really on this series. We can also train ourselves to trigger our thoughts in helpful ways. Okay, so triggers, just get that, can be harmful, but we can coach it to be helpful. Okay, so how's that for a neurohack, right? Every day, we're bombarded with multiple mental and emotional grenades. And Leaf actually says, this, this is a quote from the book, you need to choose and decide whether or not these incoming thoughts will become part of who you are. And she refers right thinking and making right thinking automatic uh, as automatization. She says, if you don't practice using it, it will not be properly automatized. And automatization, that means that particular way of thinking or reacting that it's embedded in the new thought tree that you have, it's become an automatic part of you. You do it driven by the non-conscious mind, not the conscious mind. So you're going to get things going with right thinking. And the best way to do that is by writing your thoughts on paper so that you can see them, you can assess them, and then you make course corrections. By the way, with physical health, we do this. We usually look at what we're doing and exercising or not exercising, and we grade it. We usually look at our menu and our diet of what we're eating or not eating, and we make assessments on that. She's saying, do that with your thoughts as well. Okay, number four, final therapeuo for emotional health is this. Seek professional help if you need it. 
a few years ago, I remember watching a video. I was in seminary, and I watched Pastor Rick Warren. He's the iconic pastor responsible for writing The Purpose Driven Life. He stood before an audience at his church. It was, a, it was an audience of pastors, church leaders, and he talked openly about some of his family's struggles. He said this, a few years into our marriage, we went to marital counseling. We didn't see a way forward, so we sought outside help. And he said that people always ask him, well, how did you afford it? And the first time, okay, of many times that he sought counseling, that was well before his church was established. It was two decades before uh, any of his books became bestsellers. He had a meager salary, no book deals, no royalties. In other words, he was financially strapped. He could not afford it. He says this, I put the counseling sessions on a credit card. I didn't have the money and I knew we needed to go, so I just did what I would do if my car broke down, if I had to get it fixed, or if I had something at the house that needed to be repaired, like an air conditioner, and I couldn't afford it. I basically financed my therapy. Now, I'm not arguing that you should go create a massive credit card bill or even go to debt to seek professional help. However, I do want to highlight two reasons that you should consider professional help from a financial perspective. And Reason number one. We regularly seek professional help for just about everything else except emotional and mental wounds. Now think about it. We hire professional trainers to rebuild our bodies. We hire CPAs to manage our money. We pay architects to design our homes. Question is, why are we so averse to hiring professionals to help us rebuild our souls, to manage our thoughts and feelings, and to renovate the life we want? Reason number two. We accept debt as a given for numerous other things. Now, most people think nothing of financing a vehicle or a home. In fact, most people actually choose to do it that way. Like, it's the accepted norm. Why then are we averse to financing the cure of our souls? Again, I'm not saying that we should. I'm just thinking out loud. Now, Jim Bob, he and I were talking. He makes no bones about it. He says, after a bunch of dark stuff happened in my marriage, I went to counseling every day for a long time. I wept, I learned things about me that I needed to, and then I went deep. It was expensive, but it was worth it. And when he and Cindy lost Evans, he then went to more counseling. After he exploded his knee, waveboarding, and found himself compelled to a wheelchair for a year, growing more and more desperate and depressed by the day, he went to even more counseling. Now today, Jim Bob's a good friend, and he walks in freedom and in joy. In fact, he's so free that you're likely surprised, if you know him, uh, when I tell you that he has a past that's chock full of pain. How so? Well, he's confronted the skeletons. All of them. They've been revealed to have no muscle, no voice, no life left in them. Now, I'm still in process, but, but I'm learning this. We'll only be as free as the past pain that we're willing to confront. Sometimes that requires help from an outside source, someone trained to do the heavy confrontation with us. I know, firsthand. Remember, I got that psych eval, which is the talk with which I began this entire series. And I had to be referred for it by a counselor, which is the second counselor that I had had in that year period. You know, after navigating the wiles of a traumatic adoption, learning of abuse in our home, and being gaslighted and shunned by a once close confidant, I confronted my past head on. And I'll be honest, it's, it felt like storming the gates of hell with a little water pistol. Um, but along the way, I experienced a few miracles and breakthroughs. Um, but 
I'll tell you that most of the freedom that I experienced that came and that continues to come, it's still a process. It happened as I therapeutic my way forward. Okay, so um, just the things that I outlined, the four steps here. Number one, I ate the right foods. I avoided and still avoid binge eating and stress eating. Uh, number two, I started moving again, run, running at first a bit less than I normally did and lifting less than I could because that really taxed and stressed my body because I used to lift and exercise so much. But I created space where I could be alone and exercise and let my mind sort and let my physical body do some of the work. Number three, I journaled. I wrote. I, I actually journaled 700 plus pages with pen and ink. That activity alone, sometimes I did it for three or four hours a day. It was difficult, meaning I often teared up, even while I was sitting in a coffee shop or another public venue. Yet, even though it was difficult, it was one of the most freeing activities that I think I've ever done in my life. By putting things on paper, I was able to not only see them, but my mind was able to make connections. It was able to see things more clearly, and I was able to assess where I was and really define where I wanted to be. Uh, number four, I continued seeing a professional. His perspective helped me define terms and concepts and labels that really are misused in our culture, uh, particularly by other people who want to keep you down when you're at your lowest. So all that said, maybe here's the conclusion with, you know, maybe a little bit longer than normal than usual talk here is I've learned and I really believe that I'm in the process of learning this, that freedom is a choice. Sometimes the miracles come, but even at that, you must choose to continue claiming and walking in freedom. And sometimes you're gonna claim it before you ever see it as a possibility, as a reality. And, and then you gotta remind yourself of what you've chosen and surround yourself with others who will serve as that voice for you, reminding you, hey, like, yeah, you're, you're on the right path. And in fact, I've not really addressed it um, in, in this talk, because I've addressed it in other places, but walking in close community with others, that is paramount. In fact, there's an entire chapter on that in my book, Emotional Wholeness Checklist. I'll tag it here in the show notes to where you can see it. Every single day, you got to must claim your freedom and then remind yourself that you've done so. Uh, Caroline Leaf in that book, Switch on Your Brain, that I refer to, she says, the hardest part about achieving peak happiness, uh, peak thinking, and peak healthing is remembering that we can choose these things. So choose it. If you intend to experience it, you must intentionally decide to live free. Freedom doesn't appear by accident, and you often experience it a season after you first claim it, after you first begin fighting for it. My prayer as a sign off is may the Lord bless you, keep you, be gracious to you, cause his face of favor to shine upon you. And my prayer is that through his empowerment and through that voice of the Spirit whispering quietly but strong and bold to you, may you claim your freedom. And may you have the wisdom to see that, yes, Jesus heals things in a moment, but also he heals in a moment so you can claim it now. And then may he give you wisdom as you move forward, whether it's the four things I mentioned or other wisdom that he imparts to you. May you choose to not just I may I freedom, but therapeuo it, to walk in emotional health and wholeness. And as you go, may you experience grace, peace, peace,
And until the next time that we talk again, Shalom.